Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? A show where our host engages in a lively conversation with the guest. The guest chooses the topic and the host has no prior preparation or knowledge of the topic. Please note that the opinions expressed on this program are the opinions and views of the host and the guests and are not necessarily the same opinions and views of Al Seeger or Point of Insanity Game Studio. And now, here's your host, Chad Knight. Good evening and welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? I'm your host, Chad Knight, and it is August 26, 2016. All right, to kick it right off tonight, we've got Welcome to My Mind, Mare. And really, I've only got one thing on my mind. And, you know, usually I don't bring the guest in early, but Al, I'm going to bring you in. Hey, how's it going? A few days ago, a few days ago, I picked up, um, I guess you'd call it a lot of books. Um, second Ed, Third Ed, 3.5, and Fourth Ed, D&D stuff. Um, I picked up, I'm guessing, I don't know exact numbers, but I'm guessing somewhere in the, the realm of about 200 books, different books wow. throughout for the four, the four groups. Um, so, and Chad, just sorry to interrupt you, but so I saw that thing you posted on Facebook where it had the big truckload of Amazon that said Amazon on it. Yes. And it said, my order of books has arrived. So you weren't kidding, were you? No. And, and I didn't order them through Amazon, actually. It's, it's, it's a, it's a happy story for me, but it's kind of a sad story overall because it's a buddy of mine. I'm buying them from him and he's just, he's getting out of the hobby altogether. He's become more of a board gamer. So he's not completely getting out of the gaming hobby, but he's getting completely out of, um, role playing, which I mean, for those of us who have done it for years and he's done it for years and his wife has done it for years and they're both just hanging up their RPG boots. Which, you know, is kind of a sad thing, but on the flip side is the happy part of, <laughs> I get all these books. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to say what I got them for, but let me tell you, I mean, it's a deal. It's, uh, it's, it's insane. I will, in fact, later on, Al, I will go ahead, I will, I will send you a picture of the table of books I bought. And, uh, and then you can, you can really understand the, <laughs> the, the scope um, of the scope and breadth of what what I did. So just remember, old gamers never die; they just run out of shelf space. Well, I'm going to have that problem now. Actually, I might have to sell some of my board games just to have enough room to put all these books in. But so, was there a copy of the D and D Rule Cyclopedia in there? You know that does sound familiar. <laughs> it's the one from it's the one from Basic where it oh no no it wouldn't be from Basic. No, I wouldn't have had that, but um. There are, there is, there's the entire Calamar setting for, I believe that's 3.0. There is, um, so much second ed stuff. I got to go through it because I don't know. I, years ago, I sold off my second ed stuff. I was at a point where I needed money and I had a buyer and it just worked out. <clears throat> and so now I've slowly been rebuilding my second ed collection. And now I just got this influx of, uh, of life into it. So. I'm really kind of geeking out about that. So that's really my mind mirror um, segment tonight. And, and you know, it's just, uh, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast, he went to Gen Con. And oh, okay. one of the things we were talking about before he left, see the D&D rule cyclopedia, it was released in, I think, the late 90s, near the end of the, uh, before they cut off basic completely, because not everyone some people don't know this but TSR actually supported basic D&D for quite some time and yeah well into well into second ed actually yep and the rule cyclopedia basically contained everything from the basic expert uh companions masters and i think a little bit of the immortal stuff as well it had okay. the rules for how to become an immortal and it also had a little bit of information on the Hollow World campaign setting. Oh, okay. And it's one of those books that's so... I mean, I you can pick up the PDF of it for 10 bucks off of Wizards of the Coast's online store. But 
a physical copy of it in good condition will probably run you anywhere from 50 to 100 bucks on eBay. Okay. So my friend, when uh, he was at Gen Con, he picked up a copy in pretty good condition for 40 He sent me a text message of him holding the book in one hand, flipping me off with the other. <laughs> this, is what, this is what you get for not going to Gen Con, Al. Yeah, I know. So it's... Yeah, so that was that was a good buy on his part because, like I said, go to eBay and look up the basic rule cyclopedia, and I'm not kidding, it will probably run you anywhere from fifty to a hundred bucks depending on condition. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the older books, especially ones that no longer are being printed. I mean, it's it's crazy what they can go for, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, I'm going to jump into this week in history. Um, and as I've, as I say in every episode, I get my history facts from, uh, www.history.com slash this day in history. So August 26, 1346, the Battle of Creasy. During the Hundred Years War, King Edward III's English army annihilates a French force under King Philip VI at the Battle of Creasy in Normandy. The battle, which saw an early use of the deadly longbow by the English, is regarded as one of the most decisive in history. Late in the afternoon of August 26th, Philip's army attacked. The Genoese crossbowmen led the assault, but they were soon overwhelmed by Edward's 10,000 longbowmen, who could reload faster and fire much further. The, crossbow, ah, the crossbowmen then retreated, and the French mounted knights attempted to penetrate the English infantry lines. In charge after charge, the horses and riders were cut down in the merciless shower of arrows. At nightfall, the French finally withdrew. Nearly a third of their army lay slain on the field, including Philip's brother, Charles II of Alencon, his allies, King John of Bohemia, and Louis II of Nevers, and 1,500 other knights and esquires. Philip himself escaped with a wound. English losses were less than a 100. The battle marked the decline of the mounted knight in European warfare and the rise of England as a world power. So do you think those bowmen, do you think that they were just merely proficient in the longbow, or do you think they spent their three, they spent three of their uh, weapon proficiency slots to specialize? <laughs> you know, Sorry, I, I couldn't resist yeah, throwing a game, a D&D joke in there. Yeah, and it's exactly, actually part of the reason I picked this is because it shows the, you know... You know, a lot of times um, when when role playing, you know, people will look at something and they'll go, "Okay, so this, you know, this, this, or the next thing, you know, which 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 one actually does more damage?" What people tend to forget to look at, and especially um, I run across this with new gamers, is they'll go, "Oh, I want a heavy crossbow because it can do, uh, I think it's one die ten worth of damage, which is huge in a D and D game." But what they forget to realize, and I usually point out to them before they finish their making their characters, not always, depends on who it is, <laughs> but you get to shoot one round, and then you spend your next round reloading. So there, you don't shoot every round with a heavy crossbow, which makes sense, because, I mean, if you think about it, you put it on the ground, you put your foot on it, and you pull it up, and you lock it into place, and, you know, and a round is six seconds, so it's not like you can you do all that and get a shot off, so... They needed the no. Chinese. Uh, they needed the Chinese repeating crossbow. Yes, and there's actually a magical item like that. Um, I forget whose name they put on it, but it was it was basically made by a tinker, and then it was made magic by an, a wizard. And basically, it, you got the never-ending. You know, uh, it, it held the never-ending. Um, or what do you call them? The bolts. It was the, the the wizard had done it in such a way that you never ran out of bolts, and the tinker did it in such a way it just kept cycling through. Well, if it so, was made by a tinkerer gnome, you better hope you don't roll a natural one because that 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 sucker's gonna blow up in your face. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you know, all right. So second item is August twenty fifth, eighteen seventy five. Englishman swims the channel. Matthew Webb, a 27-year-old merchant Navy captain, becomes the first known person to successfully swim the English Channel. Captain Webb accomplished the grueling 21-mile crossing, which really entailed 39 miles of swimming because of tidal currents in 21 hours and 45 minutes. He was hailed as a national hero upon his return to England. 
and a triumphal a triumphal arch was erected in his honor in his hometown in Shropshire. The Daily Telegraph proclaimed, "At this moment, the captain is probably the best known and most popular man in the world." Endurance swimming was popular in the 1870s, and Webb decided to swim the English Channel after reading a newspaper about an unsuccessful attempt. In August 1875, his first attempt to swim the Channel ended in failure, but he decided to give it another try. On August 24, 1875, smeared in porpoise fat for insulation and wearing a red swimming costume made of silk, he dove off Dover's Admiral Admiralty Pier into the chilly waters of the channel. Accompanying boats handed him beef tea, brandy, and other liquids to sustain him, and Webb web braved stinging jellyfish and patches of seaweed as he plodded on. Seven miles from the French coast, the tide changed, and he appeared to be driven backward. But just after 10 a.m., he approached the French shore. The crew of the outgoing mail ship, the Maid of Kent, serenaded him with rural Britannia, and shortly before 11 a.m., Webb waded ashore. He was honored at a welcoming banquet in Dover, where the mayor proclaimed, In the future history of the world, I don't believe that any such feat will be performed by anyone else. Eventually, Captain Webb traveled to America with his wife and two children and staged swimming ex expeditions <laughs> that attracted a varying degree of, uh, degrees of attention. Hearing of the exploits of Emile Bloden a French daredevil who crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope, Captain Webb came up with a new plan to restore his fame and fortune. He would travel to the falls and swim a, swim a particularly treacherous stretch of the Niagara River that was feared for its lethal rapids and whirlpool. Clad in the same red swimming suit he wore when he swam the channel, he dove bravely into the water. A cheer went up from thousands of spectators gathered along the shore. At first he was swimming powerfully and looked untroubled, but then the river narrowed and he was gripped by the rapids. Three times he was pulled under and then came up hundreds of feet from where he was last seen. He was no longer in control and was pulled downstream at a furious pace. As he came upon the whirlpool, he threw up his right arm and then went under. Seconds, minutes, and hours passed, and he didn't come up. Five days later, his gashed, bruised, and bloated body was found by fishermen downstream. Webb was given a pauper's burial in the Oakwood Cemetery at the edge of the falls in a, in a small plot known as the Stranger's Rest. In 1908, in what would have been his 60th year, the Webb Memorial was erected in his birthplace in England. Its simple inscription reads, Nothing great is easy. So what do you think of that one, Al? Wow, that that takes definitely takes skill and endurance to do that, I mean. Yeah, it was yeah. too bad. I mean, I didn't... I mean, I guess I didn't know there was a whirlpool um, that had anything to do with the uh, Niagara Falls or the river. I didn't know that either, so. Yeah, I, I got to actually do a little more research on that, because that's one of those things that just kind of, I'm like, wait a second. But the fact that this guy, you know, he, he swam the English Channel, he became, you know, wealthy through this, and he became, um, you know, an important person, and that kind of... You know, when I do these stories, I don't read the entire story on the history website because we would be here for 45 minutes just with me reading the, the three yeah. <laughs> things that I pick out. But, um, you know, he he started to lose the money because he gave it away. He was a very charitable person. He would give money away to people that needed it. He He built a big house and all this kind of stuff. And the money went away. And, of course, like anybody that's famous, you know, at last they always say, you know, you get your 15 minutes of fame. Well... That had gone away too, so now he started doing all these really um, menial tasks. He would he would go and you know swim across something because people wanted to watch him, kind of thing. You know, um, very um, exhibitionist kind of stuff, just just to make ends meet. And by the time he came to America, he was dead broke. Um, he thought that the uh, railroad companies would pay him money based on the fact that all these people would come by rail to see him attempt this. Well, they didn't pay him anything. The people did come to see him, and then he lost his life. So it's it, it's a really uh, interesting way to go about, um, you know, being remembered for that one great thing. But when you look at the life as a whole, he really kind of was a 
he was a failed inventor. He was a, a failed builder. He was really a, a failed swimmer if you get right down to it, you know? So, and then the last one, this one's a little more patriotic. Do you know what happened on August 21st, 1959? August 21st, 1959, uh, not off the top of my head, no. Hawaii becomes the 50th state. Oh, okay. The modern United States receives its crowning star when President Dwight D. Eisenhower signs a proclamation admitting Hawaii into the Union as the 50th state. The president also issued an order for an American flag featuring 50 stars arranged in staggered rows. Five six-star rows and four five-star rows. The new flag became official on July 4, 1960. American missionaries and planters brought about great changes in Hawaiian politics political, cultural, economic, and religious life. In 1840, a constitutional monarchy was established, stripping the Hawaiian monarch of much of his authority. In 1893, a group of American expatriates and sugar planters supported by a division of the U.S. Marines deposed Queen, and I'm going to kill this name, Lili Uakalani, the last reigning monarch of Hawaii. The one year later, the Republic of Hawaii was established as a U.S. protectorate with Hawaiian-born Sanford B. Doyle as president. Many in Congress opposed the formal annexation of Hawaii, and it was not until 1898, following the use of the naval base at Pearl Harbor during the Spanish-American War, that Hawaii's strategic importance was became evident and formal annexation was approved. Two years later, Hawaii was organized into a formal U.S. territory. During World War II, Hawaii became firmly ensconced in the American national identity following the surprise Jap Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. In March 1959, the U.S. government approved statehood for Hawaii, and in June, the Hawaiian people voted by a wide majority to accept, accept admittance into the United States. Two months later, Hawaii officially became the 50th state. So there we go. That's that's news for this week in history. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as you all probably know by now, tonight's guest is Al Seeger. He uh, he uh, again. He did our first episode. We did it on pizza. Um, so maybe this time it'll be brownies. I don't know. <laughs> but um, Al is going to return. He's going to do another one with us. Al will probably become somewhat of a staple to this every couple months, every month maybe we'll have Al in here. Um, just because Al and I spend a lot of time doing both podcasts for myself and for him. Now I didn't guess last week. I, I was listening to the uh to the episode from last week and I don't believe I guessed what Al was going to do for a topic this year. So why don't we go ahead, Al, and just start out, just give us a quick background again of who you are, what you do, and then let's get right into the topic. Well, I'm Al Seeger, Point of Insanity Game Studio, so I do podcasts and I write some role-playing supplements. And um, as far as the, actually, the topic I decided to talk about today actually kind of blends in kind of nicely with episode four. And some of you are probably thinking, well, if you look back at the dates on when we're recording this and the fact that, you know, when this episode and episode four are going to hit on the website, wait, how do I know what happened in episode four? Well, that's because, of course, I do the editing for it. So um, I've had a chance to listen to it. So now... So let's jump back. Episode four was Parenting in the Future, I believe is what we titled it. Correct. And right. this is, like I said, so actually I'd like to start this episode a little on the lighthearted, humorous side before we get into uh, what I hope will be serious conversation here. All right, now, go ahead and hit me. I can't hit you. We're over Skype. <laughs> okay, sorry. All right. What <laughs> I mean is, why don't you go ahead and ask that first question, Al? Okay. Let's go back to a older, simpler time. The 90s, back when email was starting to become more widespread and it wasn't just for people in, like, government or big businesses or college. I got my first email address, I think around late uh, 94, 95. It was like after I was out of high school. Do you remember when you first got email? Oh, I would have been in college and the email would have only been campus wide. So that would have been about, well, 
94, I guess. Yeah, the year I graduated high school because I started college that fall. Um, and we had like email for campus use only. You could, you could email your teachers and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we all had a username so we could email each other. Um, or anybody else in the UW system. So like, uh, my wife, well, my, my girlfriend at the time, um, was going to Eau Claire and, and I was going to, uh, UW Marathon County, uh, which is a two year institution. So we could email back and forth. Um, but it's not like today. It's not where, you know, you'd sit there and wait. It would just be like, you log on and it was like, Oh, I got an email. You know, it doesn't, it, it didn't come to phones. I didn't have a, I, well, actually in 94, I don't think I even had a cell phone yet. Um, no, I guarantee I didn't have a cell phone yet. So do you remember the first email you got that wasn't a school email address? Do you remember what that was? Yeah, it was an email from, from Nicole, my wife. Well, um, I mean the email address. Oh, email address that wasn't a school? That was probably like 2003, and it would have been a Yahoo email. Um, and it's one I actually still use. Because <laughs> mine was a Juno account, and mine was deathmosher at Juno.com. And uh, see, Juno, the way that worked, it was a free program. Right. Um, you had, so unfortunately, you had to deal with advertisements, but you got free email. And it worked a lot different than a web-based email like Yahoo, where, you know, with, with Juno, you downloaded the emails to your computer. So if you set up your Juno account on two different computers, and if I was to download an email on computer A, I couldn't access it on computer B. Also, you had to, you know, each time you sent or received email, you got charged a phone call. So it's one of the, remember those days where you had to, you know, pay per call? Yeah, because it was dial-up modem. So email seemed pretty amazing at the time, you know. Oh, cause, yeah, absolutely. Cause, hey, I mean, honestly, I'm still of the mindset, computers, email, that's, all that stuff still seems kind of like magic to me, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and email, one of the things that was nice about it, not only could it, would it allow you to easily keep in contact with people that were, you know, lived far away. One of the things you could do is you could send just, you know, lists of jokes or other funny things. Yeah. And well, unfortunately it's not always good because sometimes you would get people, you, you've probably received chain emails. Oh yes. You know, where they're like, you know, if, if of course there's the, the Bill Gates email tracker, you know, if you, if you send uh, this email to, yeah, 50 of your friends in the next 10 minutes, Bill Gates will give you $1,000 of his money. Yep. And well, and I had, I had this one friend, we all have that one friend who tends to send any sort of alarmist email, like, you know, the, the, the world is about to run out of oxygen or something like that. But, but you know, the thing about these kind of things, the Bill Gates thing, the, running out of oxygen or tomorrow Facebook is going to start charging everybody unless your name is blue. Got to remember if your name's blue, then you don't get charged, but everybody's name is blue for one. And for two, I mean, those chain letters that you're talking about that used to go through email. Now they just circulate on Facebook. Yeah. And it would, it would be stuff like, you know, if you forward this chain letter on to 50 of your friends in the next 10 minutes, you know, you'll be blessed with good luck. And I know this is true because the friend of a friend of a cousin of a friend of a friend who knows someone who's a friend of a friend who also knows someone, you know, he forwarded this email on and then he won a million dollars in the lottery. But if you don't forward it on, then something bad is going to happen. And I know that's true because my roommate's friend knows someone who knows someone who has a friend who has a cousin who has a brother who also knows someone. He didn't forward this chain letter on. And the next day he got in a serious car accident. So it, it wasn't all that stuff though. Sometimes you got some stuff that was funny and I'd like oh, yeah. to, I'd like to read a, this is, I couldn't find the email itself okay. because what I used to do is if a friend of mine sent me something that I thought was funny or memorable, I would copy it into a pay, into a text file and save it on my computer. Okay. And I, okay, I, this isn't word for word what the original email was because I couldn't find it, but 
here's how it goes. Now, you have to kind of picture this being read in like a grumpy old man voice. Okay. Which I'm not very good at doing and my throat's going to hurt if I do that. So here it goes. You know, when I was younger, I promised that I would not bore my children with stories about how I had it so rough when I was their age. I wouldn't go on and on about how I had to walk 10 miles to school, uphill both ways, through five feet of snow while carrying my younger siblings on my shoulders and working 60 hours a week in the coal mine. But now that I think about it, you kids live in a utopia compared to what I had to deal with when I was your age. For starters, we didn't have cable packages with hundreds of channels. If we were lucky enough to have cable, we got 40, 50 channels tops. And if we didn't have cable TV, we were stuck with whatever local channels our antenna could pick up. And if the president was on, we had no choice because he was on every channel. Most TVs didn't even have remote controls. We had to actually get up to change the channel. Speaking of cable, we didn't have DVR boxes either. If we had a VCR, we could set it to record our shows... But if we ran out of tape, or we didn't set it correctly, we missed our show. And we didn't have the internet either. When we had to do a report for school, we couldn't do an internet search. We had to go to the library and use a book. And we had to learn how to use a card catalog. And if we wanted to steal music, we had to do it the old-fashioned way. And let me tell you, it is a lot harder to sneak a record album out of the store than a CD. Or, we had to listen to the radio until they played the song we wanted so we could tape it. But half of the time, the DJ talked over the start or the end of the song and ruined it. And if we wanted pornography, it meant we had to either find Dad's secret stash, or we had to pay some homeless guy 20 bucks to buy us an issue of Playboy. And we didn't have cell phones or GPS. We had to learn how to actually read a map. And if we got lost, we needed to stop and ask directions. We didn't have video games with realistic graphics. If we were lucky, or we were lucky if the character we were controlling resembled the character on the box art. We actually had to use our imagination. And our games didn't have save points every five minutes. If we died, we had to start over from the very beginning. I swear, you kids wouldn't have lasted ten minutes in 1982. <laughs> so, I got to thinking about that, and it's like, it made me kind of think. Do kids really have it better th these days than than we... than? you know, we had when we were kids. And I think to some extent there is this natural tendency for the older generation to look down upon the younger generation. And, you know, we like to look at some of the conveniences they have and think how they had it so much easier. I mean, I'm But is sure it truly easier? Or exactly. is it truly better? Maybe that's maybe easier, yes. But is it truly better? I mean, my daughters now we're both we're both parents. Um, I've got a sixteen year old who's a senior in high school this year, and I have a fifteen year old who's a sophomore in high school this year. And the minute I start talking about something when I was a kid, they both roll their eyes and they're like, "Oh, the old man's coming out," you know, because they they think that. Um, when I tell them about stuff when I was a kid or stuff like that, that, that I'm saying that they have it better or that I had it worse. And most of the time, it's, that's not the point. For me, when I say stuff like that, it tends to be a reminiscent kind of thing. Like, I'm reminiscing about the fact that, you know, this, that, or the next thing is the way it is now versus when I was a kid. I mean, you know, they talk about how quickly things change in the world today. 
But when you look back at history, up until 1900, they did stuff pretty much the same way they did from the 1600s. And then you hit that that um, that revolution of of, um, uh, of motivation, automation, and things like that. And if you can look at the world as it was in 1900 versus where it is today in 2016, they're two separate worlds. If you took a person from 1900 and put them in downtown New York in the year 2016, they would think magic was going on around them. Exactly, because like I remember, you know, the Captain America, the first Avenger, that movie. It's like, you know, you remember uh, Captain America going, you know, getting suspended animation back in the '40s, and I remember they had that scene where he woke up, and you know, he runs out because he obviously he's just waking up, and he thinks that he's been captured by the enemy, and he you know, goes outside and he's in the middle of Times Square in New York and he's, I think it's in Times Square, I don't remember. But, yeah, you know, he's just right. kind of looking around like in just amazement. And, you know, we even, there are even some people alive today who are in their hundreds. And, you know, I occasionally you might read an article or a story about these people and how, yeah, they notice, you know, they remember back when, uh, you know, everything was horse and buggy. And now it's like, yeah, if they wanted to, they can, you know, jump in a car or a bus and make the same trip that used to take a couple days. They can make it in the span of a, you know, a couple hours. Right. I mean, you go back to, let's just say turn of the century, 1900. Now, were there automobiles of a sort? Yes, they were electric. They were steam powered, you know, thing like that, things like that. And they could go further than, let's say, their parents could on horse and buggy. But it was still limiting because, you know, the electric only ran for so long or you had to keep, you know, the steam engine only went for so long. I can now, and do on a regular basis, get in my car, drive from central Wisconsin to Columbus, Ohio, and it's a day. You know, that would have been a week you know, back then, even even with the invention of early cars, which, you know, they topped out at 18, 20 miles an hour. So, you know, just what I've seen happen in my life as far as technologies. You know, when I was when I was a kid, we didn't have cable. We didn't get cable till I think I was 12 or 13 years old. Now, yes, we had TV. You know, yes, we had local stations. There wasn't a lot of them. I think we had five here. Um, but then cable came along and our first cable package had 20 channels. Yep. And remember back then you had the little box that was wired to the cable box and it had that little triangular clicker. Do ours remember didn't those? have that. Ours, ours had, you had to stand up, go to the TV on the, on the cable box and click it there. Yeah. Cause we first got cable, I think in like the late eighties. And yeah, that's what we had ours. There was the cable box that was attached to the, you had like a 10 or 12 foot cord, this box that had this little triangular clicker. And usually they had the card on top of it that told you what channel was what. And remember, you know, you usually it's like there was always the one menu channel where was usually at the beginning where you had to. Um, you know, it would show like the yep. what's happening for the next couple hours. And of course, the problem was if you were looking what's on channel 10 and but when you turn it on, it's up to channel, you know, 12, you have to wait a couple minutes for it to cycle on back. Yep. So, I mean, I definitely think that in some regards, yes, we do have things a lot easier. And I mean, I don't know. Did I've I've actually addressed this in a two part episode my on my own podcast. Uh, did a two part episode called "Changing Technology," where my friend Steve and I we discussed about how technology changed from when we were kids to what it is now. Right. And so, just off topic here. So, how what do you think? I mean, are you jealous of your children's like video games and MP3 players and stuff, laptops and stuff like that? Uh, do you wish you would have been able to have that? Or well, here comes the old curmudgeon in me. No, I I don't. Um, 
do they have things easier than we did? Yes. Do they necessarily have things better than we did? I don't know. Um, Because, you know, because I look at things simple as playing. My kids have never really been outdoorsy. They never wanted to go outside and play. They'd much rather stay in the house and watch TV. They'd much rather stay in the house and play on their video games. And when I was a kid, you didn't even think of the only times you watched TV really was in the morning before school. And then at night after you came in, after you were done playing, you know, um, Saturday morning cartoons, but then you went outside and you were outside until dinner time. Yeah. And I know my son's like that too, where I have to kind of hard, you know, really nudge him to get outside. And that's what I like about Pokemon Go. It's actually made him want to go outside more. And because I, I remember I've, we talked about this in my own podcast where the, you know, the, when we played it the day after it came out, right. we went to my local nature center. And usually when I take him to a nature center, he gets bored and wants to leave after 10 minutes. But we actually stayed there for about an hour. So Right. And with my girls, my youngest girl, my oldest girl never really got into the Pokemon. My youngest girl was on it. Like, I think she loaded, downloaded it the day it started. So she was on it from the beginning. And she did it for a few weeks. And then I think she realized that this is exercise. And I'm outside doing this, and I really don't want to do that, you know. Um, so I don't, I don't know the last time she played. And I'll be honest, it's it's not on my phone anymore. Um, because if I go walking with my wife or other people, it's like it, it gets kind of to be a hassle where I'm like, okay, stop, I got to catch this Pokemon, you know, because it's it was for. For when I did it, it was for me and my daughter so that I could spend time with her. But with her stopping doing it, you know, it just kind of, it kind of lost its, its flavor for me. Lost its charm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't have anything against people who are still playing it. And if, you know, people are playing it a year from now, great. And if my daughter gets back into it, there's a good chance it'll go back on my phone. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we might be on the same page here. So when it comes to technology and things like video games, for example, and, you know, portable media players, you know, going from like the Walkman to the portable CD players to MP3 players. So are you kind of glad that we had that we had a chance to witness those stages in development? I do. Um, I am still very much a CD guy. Um, I go out. I don't have an mp3 player i tried that once it just doesn't feel right to me if that makes any sense yeah and i know some people have complained about well maybe not complained but there are people who will swear that a you know a vinyl record in good condition is going to sound way better than a cd or an mp3 and now i'm not an audio technician expert but really a lot of it depends on the quality in which you render it as like right like with the podcasts that i do i render them at 128 kilobytes kilobits per second because it's going to make the it's going to make the the file a little smaller and easier to download whereas if i did it in full 256 cd audio quality it's going to be a lot larger and going to take up more space right and to be honest when you're just listening to two people talk or three people talk anything over 128 is is really kind of a lost cause because i'm not going to sound that much better by doubling the size of it yep exactly and but one thing that i was also thinking about and there's articles i've seen here and there I apologize. I was going to try to do a bit more research so I could give sources and go back and find some of the articles I read. Um, It's just that the last few days at work, they've been socking us with overtime. So I haven't. That's not a problem. I mean, have you listened to this podcast already? We're not about stats and reality. We're about talking and explaining what we believe to be true versus perhaps maybe what is really true but i understand yeah. what you're saying yeah and so i might be wrong on some of the stats you know some of the you know the stuff i'm talking about here and 
Um, you know, so like I said, it's just because I might, it's possible I might be misremembering certain things. Right. Um, and like I said, we're doing this to, and the reason I want to discuss this is I, I hope that people find the conversation, you know, interesting and, um, you know, maybe even make you go out and look at stuff, uh, as well. But like one of the, you know, articles I remember seeing a while ago, it was talking about some of the problems that the younger generation is facing. So, while it's easier for older guys like us to look at our children, you know, playing video games and playing games on their cell phones and, you know, having these high definition TVs. Well, once you start getting into the real world, a lot of stuff in the workforce and the economy here in the U.S. has changed where there are some significant obstacles against younger people entering the workforce. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? And I know this is something that I'm not going to have to worry about it for about another eight years with my son. But I know you mentioned that your daughter is, you know, about to go to college. So this is something that, you know, she may have to contend with in a few years. Well, yeah, even, even more than that. I mean, she's already, she has a part-time job. Um, and I don't think there's really barriers in the, you know, bottom of the rung part-time uh, job type categories. But I, I think, um, and, and this is kind of a different take on it, but I think they might actually be better qualified. Even some of these kids before they go to college um, for the technical jobs because of the way the world is now. Um, you know, I talked to these when I was when I went back to school and got my degree in um, I have a degree in computer networking. When I went back to school to do that and these kids, they were, I mean, 18, 19 years old. I'm, you know, 30 years old getting my degree and they're doing things with computers that just it was magic, you know, Um yeah, because remember the days back when we were in school, it's like, what did we do for computers? We had, what, Math Blaster, and that was about it? Maybe. I remember I remember at my high school, I was, a, I was a sophomore, and they got a computer lab. And everybody's like, well, what are you going to do in a computer lab, you know? And really what it was is it was, it was printing, basically. You could, it was, it was go in, type your paper out on this computer hit the print button and it would spit out your paper, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I remember when I, I took a, a computer class at my high school back in 94, you know, our storage medium was those floppy disks, which were actually floppy. Oh, the five, the five and a quarter inch yep. floppy disks. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, and I guess I, I think you make, well, you definitely make a good point there where one advantage that, the youth heading out into the, you know, into the job market do have is they're, they're going to have an easier time adapting to new technology. I've worked in tech support jobs. And sometimes when you have had, when you do need to assist someone who is older, you know, I've had people right up straight out to me, you know, straight out tell me that, you know, I'm 60 years old and I know nothing about all these computer things. So that's when you usually know that, okay, this is going to be fun. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's things like, um, my dad is, is, is horribly, uh, that way. He's 70 now, but, um, when he was still working, probably, oh, close to 20 years ago or so, he works in a, he worked in a paper mill. And they brought in um, computers, to, you know, to help with running the machines and and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things they finally did is they said, okay, everybody's going to have email and you got to check your email every day. Well, he figured out how to use the computers, you know, well enough to do what he was doing in the paper mill. Uh, he, was on a, he was on what they call a sheet cutter, so he would cut paper into whatever size, you know, they needed at the time. Um, but... He refused to do the email to the point that I think he actually got wrote up once or twice because, you know, there was stuff in there that he was should have known that he didn't know because he never opened that email. And he was so bullheaded <laughs> that they ended up starting to hand him memos, 
you know, printed out memos and that he was fine with. But, you know, it, it's just that sort of complete, you know, um, dis, disdain for new technology. Now, I don't understand all the new technology, but if somebody shows it to me, am I not going to use it just because it's a new technology? No. I might not use it because it doesn't function in a way that does anything good for me or that it may function in a way that I don't understand and therefore I get frustra frustrated with it. But I'm not going to just not use it because it's new. And and I think that's the way most people our age are. Yeah, I mean, if something, if learning a new program, if that's going to help you do your job more efficiently and more effectively, yeah, I think even the you know, the grumpy old timers are probably going to finally, eventually they're going to say, okay, yeah, I see now why I have to learn this. Right. But, and I know one of the things that some of the articles I've read over the years, well, not years, um, over the last, you know, few months or so that have talked about some of the, you know, the problems that the younger generation are going to face when moving into the workforce a lot of it has to do with things like, you know, student loans and the raising, rising cost of living. Right. Because, I mean, there was one article I remember where, and I said, I apologize where I read it. I didn't have a chance, time to go dig it up again. But you know, some, one of the popular stereotypes of millennials is, you know, the ones that are like in their late 20s and early 30s, and they're still living with mom and dad. And, you know, they're like, okay, some people criticize that. I guess millennials, they're, they're getting married and they're having families later in life, which right. that part, I don't see why people would attack someone for that because we're parents. We both know children can get pretty flippant expensive. So, you know, you, know, you don't want, ideally, you don't want to have children until you know you're going to be able to financially afford to take care of them. And especially when you talk about daycare, oh, I mean, God. If the cost of daycare doesn't break your back, I don't know what will. Yeah, but, if the cost of daycare doesn't doesn't put a crimp on your style, then obviously somebody's paying you way too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they were saying that, but you know, the person who was disputing that was like, well, we also have to consider things like there in some areas there is a very severe shortage of affordable housing. So in some cases, yeah, you, you don't have younger people buying houses as early as they used to and starting families. And, and at some extent, it's because, you know, just the the wages over the last like 30 some years or so have not kept up with the cost of living for the average worker. And, you know, I'm sure you've probably seen people, you know, show the, you know, pass the, the memes around Facebook and where it shows like, okay, the difference between what the average worker makes and what the average CEO makes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, I've heard people say that statistics will, you can make them say whatever you want them to say. You know, like seven out of two people agree that, you know, 375% of statistics are hogwash. <laughs> so, um, Well, you know, I, I look at it this way with Lee, where you were talking about, you know, people nowadays, they tend to be, they get married later, they move out of the house later, they, you know, have kids later. I don't know if I consider that a bad thing, though. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Al, but when I got married, I was 20 years old. Um, I don't regret getting married at 20, but then again, when I look back at it and I think, you know, we had our first daughter when I was 23, and I think about the things that we had to go through to try to make ends meet because we started that early. You know, I get it. I get wanting to be, want, these kids wanting to be financially sound, that these kids want to be, to know where they're going in their career and that kind of stuff. But then again, part of that makes me sad to think that. they that, have to wait. Well, not that they have to wait because you don't have to wait. But well, to that's think, true. To, to, it makes me sad that these kids feel like they need to know where their career is going. They need to know, you know, all this stuff that they feel they need to know before they can even think about getting married or being with somebody that they love. So it's, it's kind of a give and take on that. I, I get it from a logical 
you know, from a logical mindset, I get it. I get why people do wait to do these things. Yeah, but and if then, someone Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. But then from the from the uh, from the emotional part of it, the the heart part of it, it, it makes me sad. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and, and that's a good. I mean, it, it it's easy sometimes it's easier to look at things emotionally and sometimes it's it's easier to look at things logically. I think that's what you're trying to say. It's like thinking with your heart or thinking with your head. Exactly. And I mean, if I think if I don't think that it's right to criticize someone if they haven't moved out of the house, if it's in a situation where, yeah, maybe they do live in an area where, you know, uh, just rent for a two bedroom apartment, you know, costs a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. And I mean, some places like New York, yep. and Hawaii, both of those places are extremely expensive to live at. Um, many years ago, this was like 2001, I think. Okay. A couple of my wife's friends had moved out to New York and the area they were moving, they were advised not to look at any house that cost less than $400,000 because it would be, it would be junk. Now out here, I mean, I don't know up in your area, but around here, $400,000, that'll get you a pretty nice house in most areas. That's a lot of house in this area too. Um, I just read an article actually on the the um, average house costs in the area around here, and for Wassa proper, which is the main the main city, um, it's like one hundred and thirty nine thousand, and then you get into some of the surrounding cities like Rothschild and Weston, where it's a little more affluent than you know downtown Wassa, and you're looking at the hundred and sixty to one hundred ninety thousand is the average, so. If you take that as the average, just think of what $400,000 could get you in this area. Yep. And they they decided, well, let's go look at some of these $400,000 houses. And yeah, it was it was junk. So yeah, and uh I mean, in of course Hawaii, you know, my friend Steve who lives out there and you know, he's told me about how expensive uh rent is out down there as well and I mean, mm-hmm. part of it is of course with Hawaii being an islands, you know, series of islands you're not going to have as much land to begin with. Right. So you're going to have a premium. Exactly. Cause, and that happens in any place where there's overpopulation, where you've got only a limited amount of land and you've got more people who need to compete for, you know, living spaces. So, and another thing I remember reading about is how, and again, this is something that's come up of course in the election. It's been really big in the latest election cycle, student loans and the impact that it's been having on the economy where now I tried doing some research and it's like, I guess when the average person who graduated in 2016, depending on where they went and how much grant or scholarship money they were able to get is going to have anywhere from two to $400 a month payments for student loans. And part of the problem is since wages have been stagnant, over the last few decades, yeah, it's possible that even if you do get a degree in something useful, or if you go to like the tech and get a, you know, get training in like carpentry or welding or some other skilled trade, Mm -hmm. which, you know, maybe it's not as glamorous as being like a hedge fund manager, but still practical skills that used to be able to guarantee a good living, you know, it's still going to be very difficult to or it can be difficult to find a job that's going to let you pay off those loans in time and still be able to get a house and start a family. Oh. And I mean, I, I, I suppose, I mean, I don't think we really want to get into the whole, what causes some of this to happen. But um, I mean, I think one of the problems is like with union membership, how, and I know, I mean, I don't know if you, how you feel about unions pro or against or, or ne- neither or, um, I am of the mindset that in most cases, unions have outlived their usefulness. Okay. Well, I disagree with you in a, to an extent because I've, you know, my wife's parents were both union and my mom has worked in union. My wife used to be in a union. I think it really kind of depends on the individual union itself. Um, cause part of the, I was actually reading an article, uh, not, 
too long before we started recording where it was talking about some of the stuff that goes behind the scenes on a strike where they were talking to one person who was, you know, a strike who was part of a union that was going on strike and another person who was actually part of a company that was hired to be a a strike breaker. And part of the problem is you got to, both of them were saying, you really got to be careful about what, you know, what you're doing when you're in the public eye like that, because, you know, of course the, the union, you know, the, the union is always trying to get it so that the employer is pictured as being this heartless entity that wants to pay their workers as little as possible. Whereas, you know, the, you know, of course, management wants to portray the union workers as being, you know, they're just greedy union members who want to get paid $70 an hour to do nothing and, um, and stuff like that. And well, I think if you took a look at every union, you are going to find some unions that, you know, okay, maybe they are being unreasonable, but I think you're also going to find a lot of unions that some of the points they bring against their employer are valid points. Well, you know, for me, it, it's uh, the big thing is in, in my line of work, what I do, I work with unions a relatively decent amount of time in the year. You know, there's, there, okay. there's certain cities, New York, Chicago, um, L.A., um, San Francisco. I mean, there's not a ton of them anymore, but there are some cities that the unions have a stranglehold on. And when they do that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's bad for everybody involved. You know, my customer ends up paying more because I've got to pay more to have a union guy do the work than say even one of our own employees doing the work. And it's sad when they can put a stranglehold on it to the point that, and I'm not going to name the city and I'm not going to name who I'm working with or anything, but I work in cabling. I, I do, um, I do cable installs for small to medium sized businesses. Okay. For computer networks. And I work with union guys who the requirements are we hire two guys. Okay. So they always work in teams. All right, I kind of get that. Not always necessary, but it's it's the way they do. Then, and, and this is the this is the part of unions, at least in what I deal with, that make me think perhaps they've they've been you know they've went beyond their usefulness. Is I've got to hire these two guys for eight hours. I pay them for eight hours, whether the work takes an hour or it takes eight hours. I pay them that first eight hours. It's a it's a guarantee. It's a you know. They get paid that no matter what. So I pay them this this eight hours regardless. Now, if they go over the eight hours, they charge me time and a half based on their their hourly, which is already crazy, and I'm already paying for two guys when I don't necessarily need two guys. So that's where I think the that unions have kind of overstepped their bounds. But so have we gotten to the point, Al, where this has kind of gotten around the the uh we, we've come to a conclusion on what you wanted to talk about today? Up to some extent. I mean, I know it's something, unfortunately, I'm a little short on time right now, but um, it's something that I, it's a topic that I'm sure we could explore again at a future date. Um, because, I mean, I just want people to think, okay, before you criticize your ch- your kid or the younger generation because they have these smartphones and high definition TVs and all these other gadgets and goodies, kind of look at the big picture and think, well, yeah, they do maybe have a lot more conveniences than we did when we were kids. They have a lot more aggressive job market that they're going to have to go out into and that they have to com- they have to contend in with and that they have to, to work within. So maybe it's not all about having lots of shiny, beepy, fancy gizmos. There, we got to kind of look beyond that and understand why maybe some of the members of the younger generation do have complaints about uh, the state of the economy and society in America. But unfortunately I don't have the time to get into that right yeah, now. Yeah, no, so. and I, and I agree with you, Al. And, but on the same, on the same breath, they have to realize that we're still going to reminisce about what it was like when we were kids. It's just, it's, it's human nature. 
Yeah, and we have to kind of understand that, yeah, times are going to change. Sometimes it's going to be for the good, the best. Sometimes it might be for the worst. But I think that's a that's a topic we should come to for an, on another day. Yep. All right, let's just move on now. Now, this is the segment where hopefully soon I'll start getting some email and we'll, I'll read some email from, from people that listen to the podcast. But like Al said, only the second episode as of today has, has hit the air and this is episode five. So hopefully by episode 10 or so, I'll actually be seeing some email that we can read. Um, so that's my little hint here, guys. Uh, send in some email. Give us, give us some ideas of what you like, what you don't like. Is there a certain segment I do that you're just like, why are you doing this? Um, that'd be great to hear. Um, next week, um, I've got a friend of mine. He's going to come and do the podcast with me. His name is Mike Loomis. I have known Mike now for, oh, some, some well over 10 years. And uh, I have no clue. I have clue zero what Mike's going to talk about. He is kind of one of these uh, uh, master of uh, – master of uh, – Jack of all trades, master of none. Jack of all trades, master of none, exactly. So he's going to come in and talk to us next week. Um, so this is this is the wrap-up. This is the quote of the day, Al. Again, I'm going to read it, and you get to tell me if you know who did it or who you think might have given the quote, and then I'll, I'll give, the, uh, give the actual answer. So here we go. We think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked, and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. We must start in our own homes to remedy this kind of poverty. Thoughts? Mother Teresa? It was Mother Teresa. And the the reason I picked this quote is today would have been her 106th birthday. So with that, I want to thank Al for sitting down with me here for an hour or so. And... um, Thank all of you out there for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Good night. Good night.